Hello and welcome to the Samungo's podcast. This is another collaboration with Continuous and another lecture from the pocketbook of emergency medicine. And this week's special guest is Casey Alban, who works at Emory University School of Medicine in Georgia, USA. And she'll be talking about uh, reading head CTs and how that influences bedside management. But just before that talk, we managed to get Casey on a call and she's given us her top five pearls of wisdom, which you'll hear shortly. One other thing to let you know about is please make note of this web page, www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Now, every episode, we will put the accompanying video from that lecture on that web page every week to coincide with that week's episode. So if you store that on your mobile or computer, then you'll be able to watch the video as well. So let's just jump right in. So, hello, Casey. Welcome to the Samungo's podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. So, Casey, probably just uh, to get started, if you don't mind, could you give us a little quick background just to you, your professional background and where you are in the world? Yeah, absolutely. So I am here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a neurologist by training. I did my residency at MGH up in Boston, and then I actually did a simulation fellowship um, and spent some time doing some dedicated sim and med edge like dedicated fellowship for a year. And then I moved down to Emory um, and did my neurocritical care training. And I have stayed here as a neurointensivist, um, very busy clinical service running um, within our system. We have about 72 uh, neuro ICU beds. So we are quite busy um, and it's awesome. Fantastic. Well, look, you were very kind enough to do a lecture for us for the pocketbook of emergency medicine on reading CTs. Uh, things that will help at the bedside, which is absolutely fantastic. And we're going to play that now in the podcast and users will be able to watch that video uh, on a page, which we'll uh, tell the users about at the end of that talk. But we wanted to get you on this call just to add a little bit extra before we play that video. So we thought we would do a top five tips. Now, this is directed to primarily emergency clinicians, but it's really around neurocritical care. So what are the top five pearls of wisdom that you would impart on emergency clinicians? Um, I love this format. Um, I have very, many, very, very many. So to boil it down to five was hard, but I think that this is, this is the really like good take the bedside meat. So number one, if you have a patient who has a sudden loss of consciousness and you really don't know why, um, I think very often we get sort of looked we get pulled in to look for toxic metabolic derangements. Are they hypercarbic? Did they use, did they have some overdose? Um, and those are common things that are being common, right? Like you'll find those more often than you'll find some emergent neurologic issue. But I always remind people if in that first screen, you don't really come up with something obvious and the patient is still altered, you absolutely must think about, is this a Basler artery thrombosis? If you don't ask yourself that for a sudden loss of consciousness, you will miss it. Um, it can You can definitely get more information by doing a really good detailed neurologic exam, looking for sort of any ophthalmoplegias, any sort of gaze palsies, you know, things that might be pretty subtle. But I think if you don't ask yourself, like, is this a Basler artery thrombosis, you will miss it. So I always tell people very, very, very low threshold for a CT angiogram if you have that resource available in a patient who's coming in with unexplained loss of consciousness. So that's pearl number one. Pearl number two, we're going to switch gears. Uh, status epilepticus, right? Very common. Happens all the time. 
What I see done most frequently that I think sets people up for um, more problems is that they under uh, underdose benzodiazepines, right? So people come in and they look a little altered. They they were seizing en route to the ED. They're kind of not back at baseline. This has been going on for like definitely more than five minutes, um, but they don't look great. And so to give someone who doesn't look great 0.1 mg per kg up to four milligrams of Ativan feels a little scary, right? Like you're just going to make them totally obtunded and then you're going to have to intubate them. Don't make that mistake. If you if you get a good story from the EMS people, yes, this person was seizing, they're not coming back to baseline, they may have subtle gaze deviations, you're concerned they're still seizing, give them that, usually it's by their weight, it's four milligrams of Ativan. And that's the American Epilepsy Society, you know, recommended guidelines for status. Very, very frequently, we underdose these benzodiazepines, and that sets people up to continue to seize and thus need intubation. Um, so that's pro number one, pro number two. Pro number three, switching gears again, um, thinking about intracerebral hemorrhage. One of the pearls I give people is that if you are intubating someone with intracerebral hemorrhage, it's almost certainly because they have ICP problems. The reason they're sleepy enough to not be able to protect their airway is because they have transtentorial herniation. And so if you're thinking, I need to intubate this person, they're sleepy, they're not protecting their airway, that should trigger in your mind, I should also be giving them something to control ICP. Um, and for us, that's usually whatever's most rapidly available, an RED, that's mannitol. Um, if in your ED that's getting hypertonic saline, that's fine too. If you don't have either of those things, you can use code cart um, hypertonic bicarb. That is a very salty solution and also can control ICP. Um, but again, just if you're thinking, I need to intubate this person because they have intracerebral hemorrhage and they're sleepy, it's because they have an ICP issue. So treat that. Um, staying on this IC, uh, ICH topic, one of the other things that I think we get really trapped in is that we get a scan on someone who has uh, an intracerebral hemorrhage and we calculate their ICH score. And if it's good or bad, we kind of make decisions on triaging based on that number. And that number can be part of the equation to help you kind of decide how, se like how severe is this intracerebral hemorrhage. But I really, really caution people against using that number to triage who gets aggressive care versus like who we're not going to do stuff for. Um, very frequently, we see people kind of have this hopeless mentality if someone has an ICH score of four or, or greater. Um, and I think that we risk kind of giving up on those patients who actually might have done okay. You know, certainly they're not going to be perfect, but could have done okay. So I always tell people, you know, consider the whole patient in front of you. I, I realize that a lot of this depends on what resources you have and that sometimes we have to make tough triage decisions. And I get that. But I think um, to the extent that we can be holistic about what that patient's overall frailty is, overall sort of trajectory, take all of that into account, not just their ICH score. Um, and then finally, kind of pearl number five, we can't 
kind of leave acute neurology without talking about um, uh, acute ischemic uh, acute ischemic stroke, right? Um, one of the things that I got burned on very like early in my career is not recognizing how dependent those acute stroke patient acute ischemic stroke patients are on their high blood pressure, right? These are patients that are really trying to get blood from collaterals to the point, like to the tissue that is not getting its normal circulation. So they really need that high blood pressure that they're generating. And if you drop that blood pressure, you risk worsening that cerebral perfusion that's kind of keeping that tissue and that penumbra alive. Um. So, you know, I got burned because someone was in pain and I treated their pain and that dropped their blood pressure. And then all of a sudden they look, you know, their NIH stroke cell goes from like four to 16. Um, and I just kind of didn't know what to do. And the, the solution is just quite simple. Like if they are, you know, after getting some sort of thrombolytic, you want to keep their blood pressure less than 180 but get it up close to that number, give them fluid, put them on a presser if you need to. Um, so be really aggressive about the fact that they need that high blood pressure. Um, you know, if someone's blood pressure drops, especially if you're intubating someone, be very, very mindful. Like I want to be as hemodynamically neutral with that intubation because um, they need it. And so I think that kind of covers like top five tips. Love it. Now let's jump into the talk itself. Hello, um, my name is Casey Albin. I am a neurointensivist at Emory University. Um, delighted to give a quick presentation on how um, emergency medicine providers can use the information that we get from, you know, just your basic non-contrasted head CT to really inform judgment um, about the patient in front of them at the bedside. Um, supposed to be like a very like clinically applicable talk. All right. So the objectives of the talk are not to make you a neuroradiologist, um, but to review some of the basics of neuroanatomy on the head CT. And this will be not, not very deep, but some what I hope will be kind of key facts. And then we'll spend a little time understanding how the non-con head CT can be used to guide management, especially when you have hydrocephalus and herniation syndromes. So we'll pepper in a little bit of like clinical pearls for neuro, um, neurocritically, neurocritically ill patients as well. All right, so the value of a non-con head CT really cannot be overstated. Um, it is incredibly important for making management decisions and um, TPA decisions in acute stroke, where we can use it to find out, you know, find hemorrhages, um, as well as to understand the underlying etiology for an ischemic uh, event. And beyond acute uh, stroke care, the non-con head CT is really important in helping us understand some of the architecture of the brain. So it's a beautiful scan for understanding hydrocephalus, as well as the assessment of midline shift and herniation. It can also be used for the assessment of diffuse anoxic injury. And then it's like pretty nice for like kind of just a quick scroll through to understand is there anything else going on, such as pneumocephalus. Are we looking at a lot of... Um, lesions or some underlying um, abscesses, you know, so other things that can pop up that we're probably going to further investigate with an MRI, but give us a window into something else is going on. So first, so going back, 
we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this, sort of how the non-con head CT can show you um, the architectural distortions that should make you really worry about a patient, right? So I know that all of you will have radiologists that read these head CTs and they may say that there's hydrocephalus. They may say that there's herniation, but I want you to be able to, to quickly scroll and say, that's really severe versus like, yes, it's a problem, but I have some time. So it's really important to understand like sort of what a normal brain looks like. And this is a T1 MRI, which I chose because um, MRI obviously gives a lot more detail um, about the neuroanatomy. But we can use this once we've kind of determined what's normal to uh, assess a head CT. All right. So the things that I want you to pay attention to are not kind of where structures are located in the brain, but where there's darkness in the brain, right? And so here at this low cut, that's sort of at the rostral pons, which means that we're cutting through uh, the pons is here. This is kind of the, the upper part of the pons. What I really want you to pay attention to is there's a lot of black around this. So these are the prepontine cisterns and into the quadriminal cistern. And you can see here that they're starting to be the fourth ventricle after the cerebral aqueduct. There's, you know, like there's a lot of space around here. And I think that this is really important on these low cuts. If we go up about one or two slices more, we're going to get to the level of the midbrain. And you can remember the midbrain because it has sort of the Mickey Mouse ears of the midbrain. So here you can see one ear, two ears, and here's Mickey's face. And again, I want to emphasize here that there's still a lot of dark space around this, right? So we're getting into the quadriminal cistern and you can see the cerebral aqueduct right here. The two things beside the Mickey Mouse midbrain are the medial temporal lobes, right? So here and here are, are the medial portion of the temporal lobes, which are down here at the bottom. If we go up a couple slices more, we're going to start to get into the level of the third ventricle. The third ventricle is the midline, um, uh, midline structure where there's CSF and it's surrounded by the two thalami. And then if we go up a little bit further, we start to see the hockey sticks of the lateral ventricles. And again, these have some, uh, they're not plump, like they're, they look like little hockey sticks. And what I want you to remember here is that the pons looks kind of like a tooth. The midbrain looks kind of like Mickey Mouse. The normal third ventricle should be just a slit. And the normal lateral ventricles should be little hockey signs. That's all normal anatomy. If you see all of those things, then you don't have major distortion in the brain architecture. And that's really what we're looking for when we use these non-con head CTs is to kind of get a sense of normal architecture or not normal architecture. You can't give a talk about neuroanatomy without kind of reviewing what is the ventricular system of the brain. So remember that CSF is produced in the lateral ventricles, which are here, which you can see, you know, starting here. So there are two lateral ventricles. Through the interventricular foramen, these go into the, the third ventricle, which you can see here is between the two thalami. After being in the third ventricle, the CSF flows through the cerebral aqueduct, which is right at the level of the midbrain, into the fourth ventricle, which is right at the level of the pons, and then continues down into the central canal of the, uh, the spinal cord. Normal architecture can be distorted 
if there is pressure and um, occlusion along any of these tracks. So part one, we're gonna spend some time looking at uh, how CT scans can be used to define um, concerning features of hydrocephalus and concerning features of herniation and what you should do if you see either of those features on a non-content CT. So hydrocephalus, remember we talked about normal, you have a nice Mickey Mouse midbrain that's right between the two temporal lobes, here and here. When you start to have hydrocephalus, one of the first findings you'll see is what we call the, the enlargement of the temporal tips. So you can see here versus on normal where you maybe see a little bit of the lateral ventricle, here at the same level cut, you see a lot of CSF. And again, that's just because of enlargement of those lateral ventricles. And what you can start to see is because of that uh, increase in the size of the lateral ventricles, you start to get a squished Mickey Mouse. We never want to see a squished Mickey Mouse. That tells us that there's really impending herniation um, and impending catastrophe. So when you look for uh, at the level of the temporal lobe, what I want you to screen for is, A, can you see uh, evidence of the lateral ventricles being enlarged? And are they squishing the midbrain? If you go a little bit further down in this scan, you can actually still see the temporal tips as we're getting more into the like rostral pons, like a couple slices lower. And what you can see here is our normal pons is a nice little tooth shape. And now it's becoming a heart shape. So again, the things that we don't want to see that make us concerned that the hydrocephalus is actually going to cause impending herniation are the heart sign and a squished Mickey Mouse. So again, it doesn't take much to look through this, but if you can start to see that enlargement and then a heart sign, all of those things mean this is a really serious amount of hydrocephalus. If you go up a little bit, remember we talked about that third ventricle is usually very small. Sometimes you can't even see it on a normal head CT. Where here, you can obviously see that this is really bowing out, right? So this is no longer kind of a nice little slit-like ventricle. It's kind of this plump, almost circular thing. And if we go up even further, we can see that, you know, that normal hockey stick architecture of the lateral ventricles has been replaced by this like giant Goombas of, of CSF. Um, in the lower region, sort of in the posterior aspects of the lateral ventricle, you can see that there's transependymal flow, meaning this flow is really pushing into uh, the brain parenchyma. And you can tell that this is acute, not just... Um, dilation and ventricular megaly because of the effacement of the sulci. And you can see here and here on a normal scan, we see nice sulci. So there's some dark uh, areas of kind of along the curve of the brain. In a patient with significant acute hydrocephalus, you'll start to see blurring of those. So again, when you scroll through, you're looking at, does it squish the midbrain? Does it squish the pons? And is it causing uh, effacement of the sulci? This is very different than just chronic ventriculomegaly, meaning large ventricles, which may also sort of distort that normal hockey shape architecture. But this is because of, of atrophy of the brain. So the brain has been atrophying and as such, the ventricles enlarge. And the reason you can tell that is there's a lot of like, you can see the sulci really well. Oop, go back. Go back one side. So here you can see that 
while yes, there is some fluffiness of the ventricles, there's also a lot more of the sulci. That's hydrocephalus ex vacuo. So thinking about hydrocephalus, I want you to think about as you scroll through the scan, how bad is it? Are we, are we smushing the midbrain? Are we squishing the pons? Are we looking for those heart signs and for the squish Mickey Mouse? Is there sulci effacement? Um, in these cases, the definitive treatment is diversion. So hydrocephalus is a, as a problem that neurosurgery needs to evaluate and potentially place a um, external ventricular drain to divert the CSF. When you don't have neurosurgery at the hospital and you need to transfer that patient, and hyperosmolar medications can be used as a temporizing measure, although they're not really addressing the problem, they're just being used to make more space in the brain. The other thing that you need to do is figure out what's the cause of the hydrocephalus. So a lot of times it's a pretty easy answer. Like you'll scroll through, this person has a large uh, posterior fossa bleed that's causing um, uh, pressure and sort of uh, obstruction of the uh, fourth ventricle and the cerebral aqueduct here. And so because of that, that CSF flow can't go through the normal, the lateral ventricle to the third ventricle to the fourth ventricle because the cerebral aqueduct is occluded. And thus, pressure builds up in the interventricular, um, sorry, in the bilateral lateral ventricles and the third ventricle. But what if there's not an obvious source? So here's another scan where you can certainly see, this is an MRI, but again, you can see that there is clear evidence of temp, uh, like the temporal tips are, are visible on the scans with the Mickey Mouse here. And you can see that there's already bowing of the third. And as I scroll through here, you can see early temporal tips, bowing of the third, and some fluffiness of the, uh, the lateral ventricles. But there's not an obvious mass, right? So you might get a scan that says, concerning features for early hydrocephalus on this patient. But the radiologist might not know why. And I think the two things that I want to leave you with in terms of when you have hydrocephalus, but not a clear etiology are to think about a missed subarachnoid hemorrhage or meningitis. Both of those conditions can cause um, sort of crusting of the, um, around the, the ventricular space. And so there is not reabsorption of CSF. And because there's not reabsorption, you get sort of diffuse enlargement of the, the CSF spaces. And um, so again, when you're thinking about acute hydrocephalus, most of the time it's a really obvious etiology. It's a bleed, uh, it's a large stroke. But think about if you don't have those things, did you did the patient have a thunderclap headache a week ago, or is the patient coming in with like signs of menin uh, meningitis? Obstructive hydrocephalus can also occur when there is compression of the third ventricle. And a lot of times that's happening because there's either a mass, which is here's a a couple days old stroke, kind of pushing on the third um, the third ventricle, or because of a, an acute bleed. And the one thing that I want to note here that's different than other kinds of hydrocephalus, and again, here's where our obstruction is, is that in this cases, if you were to divert CSF, you would actually worsen the midline shift and actually could precipitate herniation. So, so the, the take-home point here is if you have what's called an entrapped ventricle, 
you actually don't want neurosurgery to decompress that because it could worsen the, in this case, the right to left midline shift. Okay, Casey. So thank you again for that wonderful talk. And there's a lot more wonderful talks on continuous from your colleagues and some other of your uh, wonderful friends in the neurocritical care community in the US. So thank you very, very much. Um, so we finish these podcasts typically in a very similar fashion. We ask every kind of contributor the same question, if you don't mind. And that question is, if I could take you back on a time machine to meet your junior self just starting their medical career fresh out of university, what one piece of advice would you give Would you give uh, your junior self, given what you know now and what you've gained uh, on your journey to this point? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's such a great question. Um, there are many things that I would like to tell my former self, but I think the biggest one would be to, and this sounds very neurologist of me, but to really spend time at the bedside, getting to know the patient's history, and then actually doing a really detailed neurologic exam from the start. Um, very often, I think in today's medicine culture, it's very easy to spend a lot of time in front of the computer. You know, you're looking at the labs, you're looking at the imaging, you're looking at their diagnostic studies, like, you know, trying to go back and whatever the other medical record is where they came from. I mean, just looking at all the paperwork and all the imaging in the labs just takes a long time. But if you actually go and talk to the patient and and really get to know their story, that's actually where the money is. And I, I, I got that wisdom passed down from just amazing and master clinicians uh, during residency. And it has always really stuck with me that that is that's where the story is, and that is where you're going to localize the lesion or figure out the diagnostic sort of um, narrowing. And and I, I think it also gives you a chance to actually bond with the patient and get to know them and their family and their story. And that's actually kind of what gives meaning to all of this. So a little hokey, but um, I think that's that was the great advice I received, and it has helped me so much. Brilliant. I think that's wonderful advice. Well, look, Casey, thank you very, very much again uh, for joining us today. Thank you. Oh, and thank you so much for having me. I am so excited about Continuous and um, all the great content that's there in the pocketbook. Thank you very much. So many, many thanks to Casey for that wonderful talk and the wonderful pearls of wisdom. Now, this was part one of a two-part series. You can watch both episodes at a new St. Mungo's uh, Continuous webpage at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Now, if you store that on your mobile or computer, then you'll be able to quickly access all the videos that correspond with the episodes on Continuous. Now, it's the same page, which means the videos will only be available for one week to coincide with that week's episode. When we launch a new episode next week, the video will change to that lecture. Now, all the lectures and hundreds more are available on the Continuous.com website, but you'll need to register for a free account to access those. Until next time, please take care.